Drummer Max Weinberg has had a legendary musical career working on Broadway and then in television, leading the Max Weinberg Seven and the Tonight Show Band for Conan O'Brien. He's also been, since 1974, the drummer of the E Street Band. Along with Bruce Springsteen, their concerts are epic. But when he's not on the road or in the studio with the boss, he has other musical projects, including Max Weinberg's Jukebox, which will appear in Ocala at the Riley Arts Center on Thursday, May 26th. I'm Dana Hill. I sat down to have a conversation over the phone with Max Weinberg last week. Anybody who has seen you perform either at an E Street Band concert or has seen you on television as a drummer and the leader of the band for Late Night with Conan O'Brien and then on The Tonight Show will know that the repertoire that you play is tremendously varied. Can we talk about how it came to be that you were a drummer who was capable of so much variety? When you were coming up learning, what inspired you? Well, Dana, that's a great question because variety, of course, we know is the spice of life, but variety in the life of a drummer uh, at the time that I came up as a drummer, the late 50s and 60s, was extremely important. I was a generalist and you were expected, uh, particularly as a young drummer, to be able to play in whatever genre was presented. And while rock and roll, uh, particularly Chuck Berry type rock and roll and uh, early rock and roll was my my primary love and still is, in fact, uh, if you wanted to work, you had to know how to play a little Latin, a little jazz standards. And I wanted to work. For me, it wasn't a hobby. It was uh, at first an avocation and then a profession. Uh, So the versatility uh, came out. Be out of necessity, really, to work for band leader A, band leader B. Uh, it could be a wedding. It could be, a, when I was a kid, a wedding, a bar mitzvah, uh, a school dance. Um, the idea was uh, not to limit yourself uh, as a drummer, uh, not being a songwriter. Uh, and that has served me well over the last oh, let me see, 64 years or so of drumming to be able to sort of slot into almost any uh, situation but play it the way I would play it. And uh, so versatility was uh, kind of my uh, calling card, you might say. Right. I mean, so you're playing early on, maybe even in on Broadway and in pit bands and in places like that, in that environment, are the parts sort of suggested or, or written out for you? Because you've got to play uh, the songs that are part of the show, probably in a way that the band leader is expecting you to do it. Well, I was very fortunate because I had two things as a kid. I had this incredible passion and interest uh, to play the drums, and I had a wonderful gentle drum teacher by the name of Gene Thaler, who uh, started in New Jersey and and moved uh, to uh, Florida um, uh, when I was a teenager. And he instilled in me a love of drumming, that drumming was just this great thing to do. I was a kid, so I didn't really, uh, other than my natural instincts, didn't know how to play, but I was taught in the traditional way uh, with uh, like a pianist would learn scales, drummers learn rudiments. And the 26 rudiments are what basically make up marching drumming. Uh, when, for example, John Philip Sousa typed music, uh, he was the leader, uh, uh, of 
course, in terms of, you know, setting the direction for music in the late 19th century, uh, were marching bands and, uh, you know, umpa bands, uh, where the drummers basically uh, weren't soloists. They were press roll drummers. And so I came up kind of traditionally. And once you learn the basics, the rudiments, um, I guess they're called rudiments because they're rudimentary uh, then you start putting together the combinations to be able to play music. So what you have in your senses and in your head, so to speak, and your heart, you're then able to translate into doing four independent things, your two arms, your two legs. And the fifth, of course, is your imagination. So uh, as a kid, I, I took drum lessons and at the same time was able to sort of for lack of a better term, quote-unquote, rock out on the drums. I was sort of fearless. Fearlessness became a hallmark of my drumming. i play with anybody, anytime, under any circumstances. And getting paid for it was, uh, in the beginning, just sort of secondary. I wanted the experience. Uh, I can vividly and, and uh, remember the feeling of anticipation to when I had a job coming up, maybe three months later, when I first started getting into it. And, you know, fortunately for me in the 50s, you were sort of in school, you were kind of an athlete or not. And my parents were both phenomenal athletes. And because of that, didn't want me to play uh, organized sports, uh, like in team sports, uh, uh, like football, which I wanted to play, because they got hurt playing sports. They didn't want me to get hurt. Which actually now at the age of 71, I'm, I wasn't happy then, but I'm thrilled now because my knees are good. My physicality is, is as strong as it's ever been pretty much, particularly when I'm playing the drums. And, um, so I, uh, by the time I met Bruce Springsteen and I, in the East street band in 1974, I'd been playing professionally for 15, 16 years, uh, you know, getting paid for it, doing all sorts of jobs. I mean, playing behind strippers and bars, playing, uh, as a kid. And uh, how did I do that? Well, I got fake ID. <laughs> I was big for my age. But the experience to my parents was more important than the uh, propriety, I guess, uh, that you might say. That's wonderful that you had parents that were encouraging you in your musical studies. This is something that not everybody gets when he says, oh, I want to play rock and roll music or I want to be in a band. A lot of parents would view that as an impractical choice. Well, particularly back in the 60s, uh, yeah, my parents were completely supportive because I was actually getting paid to do this as a kid. And for me, it was better than, uh, it was more fun, certainly, uh, and more profitable than bagging groceries at the at the local uh, supermarket, which I also did. <laughs> uh, or, you know, uh, working in a gas station, washing windows, where they used to have people actually, you know, wash your windows for you and check the oil. Um, so I was able to do that. And because of that, um, and because of my, my, uh, sort of financial situation in my family, I was encouraged to go out and play. So for me, playing the drums was not an escape. It was a way into the establishment, which actually is quite different than a lot of the, uh, people that I played with and the uh, people that I've met through the years. Uh, I wasn't rebelling. I was doing everything I could to, to join, you know, to, to, so the kind of, you know, 
uh, I, I was very, very focused on that as a, a teenager, playing the drums, getting ahead, playing the drums. Oh, that's fantastic, because it, it sounds to me like kind of the opposite experience that Bruce Springsteen himself described in, in which his guitar was unpopular in his home. Yeah, it, it is exactly the opposite. And, uh, you know, it's one of the beautiful things about the E Street Band is the diversity of uh, our upbringings and uh, our um, uh, different experiences, uh, mostly in and around New Jersey, but the incredible commonality of music that we relate to, the uh, individuals that make up the E Street Band, you know, that's what we have in common. Although our, our um, in many ways, our, uh, our childhood and our early years were, were quite different. Uh, we come, you know, come together around, came together in the early days around the performing Bruce's music to the utmost. And you know, I came up as a show band drummer, which is a little different than today. And show bands in those days, it was kind of the, uh, the crossover between, you know, the the Sinatra, Dean Martin wannabes in tuxedos and the rock era. So you had to know how to cut a show, as they say. Uh, which was backing up uh, front guys. And I got really good at that. And because I got good at that, I was asked to play with a lot of different bands. Um, my great love was rock and roll, but I realized, I, don't, I guess just sort of uh, naturally, that if I limited myself uh, to to just what I wanted to do, that the opportunities would be restricted. And I was looking for all sorts of musical experiences. I didn't put any governor on uh, what I would or wouldn't do. And and I took every song I played, no matter how corny, as seriously as possible to play it the best I could. And uh, this was something I guess I did naturally, but uh, in the ensuing you know 60 years or so, it served me well because uh, you know you have your great loves of what you do. But my whole thing was to be in service of something else, uh, a rock song someone wrote, a instrumental jazz tune. And I wouldn't consider myself a jazz drummer, but I can get by. And one of the great things about drumming is you can reduce, reduce, reduce until the, uh, to the most basic elements and still swing. As long as you swing, you don't have to play anything. There's a great story about the actor who was very, very uh, expressive in his acting. And the director said, less, do less. And he goes back and he, he's just as expansive and dramatic in his acting. And the director says, yes. And this goes on three or four times. And the director says, less, less. And then finally the actor says, if I do any less, I won't be acting. And the director says, exactly. <laughs> And <laughs> drumming is a little bit like that. In 1974, I mean, famously, you respond to an ad and you get a job that really guides the rest of your professional life. It works out <laughs> very well for you and, I should say, for the E Street Band, because then the sound of the E Street Band really gets solidified. And working with Bruce Springsteen, anybody who's seen it knows that you're on the ball. You've got to be watching him all the time. How is it for you as a band leader yourself, to have worked with somebody and paid very close attention to every little gesture, every movement of the guitar headstock or the shoulder, how does that serve you now? Well, thank you uh, for the sentiment. I do appreciate that. Let me just preface my answer by saying that 
the original iteration of the E Street Band with my predecessors, uh, Vinnie Lopez and Boom Carter, uh, that group had its own beauty and its own. Uh, uh, it was very different, but um, if you uh, think back to those days and the emergence of Bruce. Uh, in the year or so before Roy Bitten and I joined, um, you know, the shows were uh, uh, jaw-dropping, and uh, it's always been a tight unit. Uh, in the early days, a little more maybe folk-oriented, a little more uh, kind of uh, uh, neighborhood you might say. As Bruce uh, himself said when he inducted the E Street Band into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, that Roy and I were his, quote, professional hitmen just something of a double entendre because he did start having hits, but, you know, we were also uh, well-versed in sort of the mechanics of the music business and, uh, uh, and had played with a lot of different people where the prior iterations had been a little insulated um, uh, in the uh, swamps of Jersey, you might say. Uh, the job of the drummer, whether it's me or anybody else, is to focus on the, the point man, let's say, uh, in the East Street Band, of course, it's Bruce. That's what show bands drummers do. For example, the the incredible Clyde Stubblefield, who played for years uh, with uh, James Brown, uh, who often had two drummers. Clyde was, uh, you know, among the top uh, rhythm and blues soul drummers uh, in history. Uh, was incredibly, incredibly attuned to what James Brown was physically going to do, uh, whether it's cues or, uh, or even physical movements. And one of the things, as a matter of fact, that goes to your question, uh, and the reason I got in the band, which I didn't know for a good 20 years after I'd been playing with Bruce in the E Street Band, one day we were just uh, sitting on his... Uh, uh, his front lawn in Los Angeles and uh, having a drink uh, later twilight or so. And I said, you know, I never knew why you asked me to join the band back then. He goes, well, that's an interesting question because, you know, they auditioned something like 60 drummers and everybody got to play a half hour. No matter how good or bad you were, you got a half hour. And he said every, uh, with everyone, I did this um, a little bit of a test playing this fast shuffle uh, and I would cut the band like uh, an arm signal, like safe. Right. And, you know, truth be told, most, if you were, if you were looking at me, most guys got that. Uh, but if you didn't get it, I did it again. And if you didn't get it the third time, you were completely eliminated. Uh, he, but I made it really obvious to stop. And then there was a, silence and a pause and bruce of course is known for his phenomenal uh uh stage presence his stage antics his physicality um and um there was a long pause and then he threw his arm out in sort of a you know james brown hit me kind of move and he himself told me this out of all the drummers that audition i was the only one who hit a rim shot when he threw his arm out and to me, that was a very natural thing to do. If a dancer kicks, you hit a cymbal. Um, that's what I was saying earlier, was that the way I approached drumming was in service of that sort of stage business. Um, and that's how I got in the East Street Band. A rim shot got me that job back in 1974. And 
because I was paying attention. So people have remarked that during a show, uh, you know, I never take my eyes off of Bruce, uh, which is true. Uh, not only is he a source of inspiration and energy, both off and on stage, um, he's likely to do anything at any moment. I, I'm a very close watcher of his uh, stage movements. As a matter of fact, to the point where, you know, we play these very long shows, sometimes three, four hours, always three, sometimes four, I should say. And if he's wearing a T-shirt at the end of the show and it's soaking wet, uh, there's a muscle under uh, his left shoulder. Now, I'm about eight to ten feet behind him. And before he does something physical, very often that muscle will engage. And it's a little bit of a tell, if you know what I mean. It's yeah. a little bit of a signal to me that something's coming. And, I, and and most of the time, I don't know what's coming, but I know something might come. And you don't want to miss that. If the drummer misses it, you know, you have very little margin for error. You're like the, the goaltender in sports, uh, you know, whether it's soccer or hockey. Uh, if it gets by you, that's it. Uh, so the object is to limit the uh, both the terrible experience of them getting by you, so to speak, and, and letting the music down uh, and the show down. One of my great advantages, I think, as a, uh, a musician in general, that was that my mother, uh, who lived to uh, just before her 98th birthday, was a Broadway musical fanatic from the 30s on. And it was her, uh, she loved it. And every Saturday afternoon in the 50s, until I, until I didn't want to go anymore, myself and my two older sisters went to a Broadway show and we bought... My mother bought the cheap tickets way in the back of the balcony. But in those days, you know, you had 50 people in the orchestra and the pageantry and the precision and the sound of all those people playing was most, most impressive to me. So and it was a show uh, and you didn't see the musicians. So that made it mystical. You know, the music just roared out of the pit and uh, in service of the people on the stage. So, uh, and you know, as a, 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 I guess also the fact that it so pleased my mother to see these performers as a child, you know, that impressed me. Well, my mother loves this. I mean, she, to the point where she would wait, uh, we would all gather at the stage door waiting for the stars to come out and she would get her, her Broadway playbill signed by could be Robert Preston in the music man, Julie Andrews, in My Fair Lady, uh, Dick Van Dyke, and in uh, Bye Bye Birdie. I saw them all. And uh, it was an incredible opportunity for a young musician because it wasn't just limited to, uh, you know, like my generation, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, which were, was, of course, for me. I'd already been playing for six years at that point. And what the Beatles did for me was they didn't expose me to... Uh, rock and roll music, they focused my attention like a laser because I was 13 and now I had something that I could really uh, completely focus on as opposed to sort of doing what I had been doing prior to that. Elvis, uh, uh, in a year before Ed Sullivan, people, some people don't remember the Ed Sullivan show. I'll assume for a moment that most of your listeners do. Uh, Elvis Presley and his band we're on this, the Dorsey Brothers Summer Replacement Show. My sisters 
uh, I was five years old. My sisters were young teenagers. And we watched that summer replacement show. I think it was on CBS TV. Uh, I may be wrong about that. It might be on NBC. But um, uh, th- th- that was his first TV exposure that I that I knew of. And what was interesting about that was it was one camera. So you saw the three musicians playing with him at once. So while it wasn't a band per se, it was a band. And knowing Scotty Moore and DJ Fontana, DJ was a particularly close friend of mine who was his original drummer. Uh, that's how they looked at themselves. They were on the road together. Internally, they were a band. Of course, Elvis was the star, but they thought like a band. They played like a band, but they followed the leader. And Elvis was the leader. And uh, that was a lesson that I learned very early on. And you talk about my band leading days. Um, most everything I learned about being uh, a band leader came from uh, two people, Bruce Springsteen and Steve Van Zandt, both, in my view, the cream of the crop of band leaders for different reasons. And, uh, you know, particularly with attention to detail, um, you know, they say that God is in the details. And in all music, whether it's rock or anything else, when you detail it, when you compose it, even if you're improvising, uh, it's the details, it's the precision, it's the... uh, uh, you know, keeping your eye on the big picture, but not losing sight of the minutiae that goes into the big picture. And that's what I've learned how to do. And I am still learning how to do that better, you know, subtract, subtract, subtract. And uh, I think it was Picasso who made the observation that, you know, the older he got, the more like a child his art became. And uh, while I consider myself a craftsman, uh, more than a, uh, 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 you know, I don't quote unquote artist, you know, I'm in, you know, hire me, I'll give you what you want the way you need to hear it filtered through my own uh, personal lens and my personal experience. That raises a question that I've wondered for a long time. And you think about these great records that people have listened to for decades and love and know very well. And oftentimes the first note of a particular song is your drums. The first sound on Badlands or Candy's Room is your drums. When you're working in service of a song like that, do you pitch that idea, the hi-hat in Candy's Room or the tom-toms at the beginning of Badlands? And how receptive are your bandmates and Bruce Springsteen or whomever you're working with to these kinds of ideas? Again, a great question. Uh, We call those pickups. And they're sort of the almost like the red, green, and amber signal for musicians. You know, uh, when Bruce Counts is patented, one, two, three, four. Uh, occasionally on stage, I won't know what song it is because he won't. He'll change something at at three. So there's no margin for error. Um, hitting a downbeat, uh, which is the one beat usually the drummer will telegraph something and that's what those pickups we call them do. Um, it, it came obviously to all of us very naturally because think of the Beatles playing, she loves you one, two, da, 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 she love, right? She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the pickup and it sets the tone. So you mentioned those two candy's room, the hi hat that, 
That was actually inspired by Barry White and Bruce. And I can picture him in the studio saying, give me that, that Barry White, the Orchestra Unlimited or whatever the name of his group was, those, those fantastic romantic R&B records, you know, that, that 16th note hi-hat to open the song. And then he speaks in Candy's room. In Candy's room, there are pictures of heroes on the wall. To get to Candy's room, had to walk darkness at Candy's hall. And it, it, it fit. Motown records had the greatest pickups, and every Motown record, and they had incredible drummers, starting with Marvin Gaye, was the original Motown drummer. Benny Benjamin, a legend who died young, uh, played on all the early uh, Motown records. They would always do a little, think of the beginning of Ain't Too Proud to Beg, which is a nine-stroke roll, which is a rudiment. Boom, brum, boom. I know you want to leave me. Uh, I used it on Hungry Heart. Those are signals. Steve Van Zandt actually came. Well, he, he comes up with great intro pickups. He gave me the one that opens Badlands. Which is lifted from a Smokey Robinson Miracles record uh, di- directly. But, you know, we, we, you recycle it in your own sort of fashion. And there's always yeah, room for that. You can think of so many Bruce's songs that have that, you know, in March band music, you hear the bump, 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 bump. That's called a roll off. And you hear it all the time. And it's the same function. It's sort of a call to arms, so to speak. And in rock music, it signals the, the beginning of the beginning of what's about to happen. And those fills are, uh, are legendary, you know, not, not mine per se, but the ones that, uh, when you think of any pop or rock record, uh, not so much anymore. They still do exist, but in 60s rock, where, which is the genre that we, are, uh, we were uh, born in, so to speak, uh, they're, they're de rigueur. You have to have them. Another trademark of your sound is the bigness of it, the bigness of the snare drum. And even in contrast to some of the great records that you're talking about from even back in the 60s, where sometimes in, in Motown records, you almost have to listen a little bit harder to hear some of these parts, right? And that could just be the nature of the, the way that they were recorded and mixed. But by the time you're making records with the E Street Band, oh, the drums are big. Was that a conscious decision? Well, we tried to get them big. And uh, it, it, we were one of the first groups uh, uh, I know Led Zeppelin huge impact with their second record in terms of drum sounds, their second album, which predated us. Uh, there was a an obvious trend that, the, uh, and it happened for technical reasons, to isolate drums uh, in the 60s where uh, the Beatles really were, were among the first to do that, where the drums didn't ring, they were very dead. The Abbey Road record, where there was no resonance. And a lot of padding around the drums. So it became very popular to record drummers in these carpeted soundproof booths. So uh, there's a very funny moment in our Born to Run documentary that came out, I think, on the 30th or 35th anniversary of that album, uh, where all you can hear is the attack of the stick on the drum head. And it's upsetting (laughs) to everybody 
But it's impossible to get resonance when you're basically in a box that's padded. You have to have air and space for the drum to breathe. And uh, when you address the drum, you don't you don't want to. Uh, this is more of a technical thing, but you want to snap the stick out of the uh, drum. You don't want to just dig it into the head. Uh, there was a uh, wonderful drummer, drum instructor from, I believe, the 20s or the 30s named Mahler, M-O-E-L-L-E-R, who developed this method of, uh, when you look at the arms in slow motion, it looks like a whip. And I was taught that method by uh, several great drummer, drum educators, Jim Chapin, who was Harry Chapin's dad, and Joe Morello, the legendary, uh, incredibly... Uh, polyrhythmic drummer of the Dave Brubrecht Quartet, who I studied with. And this is a technique to draw the sound out of the drum. Joe Morello could do a thing where he would put the stick about a half inch above the drum, and he had such power and such mastery of his technique that he would uh, strike the drum and it would take your head off. It would be so loud with very little effort. So that was what he instructed me and the rest of the people uh, who, who studied with him. And they came from all over the world. He happened to live in New Jersey. So it was convenient for me. Um, we strove in the East Street Band to get a big drum sound. Uh, there was a popular group when we started recording the raspberries and they had this great, almost overdriven drum sound, like it was in a garage. And that's the sound we were looking for. Uh, in 1978, I was asked to do a record with the great English rocker Ian Hunter. And it was a new studio in New York. Uh, it was called The Power Station. It just opened up. And they were mainly making disco records. And we went in there, and they set the drums up in Studio A. And I tuned the drums. And as soon as I hit the drum there was the sound. I wasn't in a drum booth. I was out in the main room and I was incredibly excited. And this predated, uh, uh, the album, the river, which I went back to Bruce and Steve Van Zandt uh, and said, I just played in the studio that I found the drum sound. And, uh, I just raved about, it was easy. It's the, it's the room. That's the secret. Put the drums in the room. So we recorded The River there. We recorded uh, Born in the USA there. And uh, so that became the sort of uh, sort of signature sound. Also in the 80s, the way they mixed records, the way they recorded drums, uh, very often with sampling, which we did not do, uh, created this very big bass drum and snare drum sound. And I remember thinking back then that the drums are too loud. All the songs that I loved, as you mentioned, the Motown songs, you had to sort of work to actually hear what the drummer was doing. But they were dance records, essentially. Not our records, but the records you remember back then, you know, um, uh, Whitney Houston's How Will I Know or uh, Michael Jackson's records. Big bass drum and snare drum. And um, that became a style. And then it became, after a style, it became a fashion and a stylized approach. Um, but the, the drums should, should sound big, and they should sound real. And it's not how hard you hit the drum. Uh, there's often the story told of the great Motown drummer I referenced, Benny Benjamin, 
who uh, people who've recorded him have told me that you could be 10 feet away from him and you couldn't, you couldn't hear him play. He played, for example, I believe on dancing in the streets, Martin, the Vandellas, and those drums sound loud. It was, it was his approach to the drum and the way he addressed the drums themselves. Uh, and what I mean, uh, the striking them in a particular way, uh, that drew the sound out. Um, you know, it's, and I, in fact, when I play with my jukebox, uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, I tell the sound men, you know, I don't want the drums to be the loudest thing. I, I want you to hear them and mainly feel them in your chest, almost subliminally, because the records that I always loved, you could hear the drums, but they weren't front, you know, just because I'm the drummer and my name is on the bass drum doesn't mean the drum should be the loudest thing in the mix. Uh, that's not musical. And I uh, always instruct, you know, I don't travel with a crew. I always use uh, the house crew, a rental set of drums. My touring uh, on my own is very lean and mean. We all show up, we meet. I bring a briefcase with my little tuning apparatus. I tune the drums. I work with the sound men, the light people, uh, sound men or women uh, these days, of course. And uh, and get the sound, and I use a little bit of delay and a little bit of reverb to mimic what it sounds like in a gymnasium, because that's how I want that's how I want my drums to sound. I have often described them as uh, they should sound like John Bonham's drums played at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. If something should go wrong and you've traveled so light, a hi hat breaks or something's wrong with the pedal. What do you do? Reduce, reduce, reduce. I can do everything I need to do on a snare drum. And as a matter of fact, when I auditioned for Bruce back in 1974, I was playing in the Broadway show Godspell, and it was a Monday night, which was a dark night in New York, and I didn't bring my entire drum set. I brought a bass drum, a snare drum, a hi-hat, and one cymbal. I didn't bring tom-toms because the ad that I answered said, uh, you know, must play Jerry Lee Lewis to Chuck Berry. And uh, no junior Ginger Bakers. And although we all love Ginger Baker and his flamboyant drumming, it wasn't what Bruce wanted. And a junior Ginger Baker is sort of a, you know, a Ginger Baker wannabe, which I admired Ginger, loved the records he made. He was one of the classics, uh, rest in peace. Uh, but that wasn't my style. My style was much more uh, contained and, again, in service to someone, someone else which was a good thing. That's how I've kept this job for about 50 years. And um, uh, if something breaks, well, there's duct tape, <laughs> there's, you know, rope. And that has happened, actually. I've had I've gotten to places where the back, we call it back line, it's a rental company, uh, where maybe the drums are a little rusty. Drums are typically, in rental companies, not that well-maintained. And particularly if they're busy, because they're always out, somebody's playing on them. But uh, I start right at the beginning with new heads, tune them. And you do, it's interesting, because it adds another hour and a half to the day. But after all, I'm the one that's uh, playing them. So I want them to sound at the source the way I want them to sound. And I can get, I can take a drum set that's completely disassembled and within 45 minutes be playing it. And uh, then we work on the sound with microphones and such. But, um, uh, yeah, you improvise. Uh, the whole I had a drum teacher once who was a very famous 
uh, famous drum teacher, but he was even more famous as a drummer. He was his name was Gary Chester. Gary Chester was the busiest rock. Uh, pop studio drummer of the 60s and early 70s in New York City. You can hear him on almost everything by Dionne Warwick, a lot of the Four Seasons. He played, and he could have played only on this song, and he would have been in the history books. He played the drums on the Isley Brothers' Twist and Shout. In any case, when he was older, he taught lessons, gave drum lessons, and I studied with him for about a year, and he had a very interesting system of of teaching. He wanted you to do everything backwards. So what you'd normally do with your right hand, you would do with your left hand. And then he, uh, uh, he'd have the dog run through the studio or his kids would come in asking a question. Uh, the phone would ring, the doorbell would ring. And I was confused at first because, you know, something, his point of his point was that you should be able to maintain your concentration through any kind of distraction. It was part of his method was to try to throw you off. And uh, at first I didn't know what he was doing. And I thought, hey, I'm paying my 50 bucks for the hour. You know, we should be just you and me and it should be quiet. But then after about a half a dozen lessons, I got it that no matter what else is going on around you, you have to maintain your composure. And it was a very important lesson. And I guess I was in my uh, early 30s when I studied with him. So, yeah, you just sort of improvise. I Listen, I've had bass drum pedals break, and I started even with Bruce uh, early on when I didn't have a spare, a uh, bass drum pedal break, and I started kicking. Bruce loves to tell the story. I started kicking the bass drum with my foot. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, you know, that's the idea is don't let anything throw you because things will if you let yourself get distracted, you're not doing the job. I'm Dana Hill. You're listening to my conversation with drummer Max Weinberg. Don't miss part two when we talk about his television work and his work with the Max Weinberg jukebox.